This is episode 51 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Jennifer S. Kelly. As a horse racing fan since childhood, Jennifer S. Kelly wanted to add a book about the first Triple Crown winner to her library and found that no such book existed. Her book, Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown, brings Sir Barton's story to fans like herself, people who are endlessly fascinated by racing's past and its influence on the present. After falling in love with Walter Farley's Black Stallion series as a child, Jennifer watched her first Kentucky Derby in 1988 and has been hooked ever since. Spending her spring months looking forward to the classics and horses like American Pharaoh and Justify, capturing the hearts of so many people. When she discovered that Sir Barton's life had not yet been explored in print, she endeavored to tell his story in full, using her background as both a technical writer and a college writing instructor to research and chronicle the life and times of America's first Triple Crown winner. As both a racing fan and historian, she's excited to bring you Sir Barton's story, from his purple pedigree to his lasting influence on the sport we all love. Jennifer lives in Madison, Alabama, with her husband, Jamie, and their two sons. In addition to racing, she loves playing tennis, dominating at trivia games, and making lists of future projects to continue her work, capturing horse racing's storied history. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade and today I am so excited to have fellow equine author Jennifer S. Kelly on the show with me today. Hi Jennifer, welcome. Hi everybody, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you Carly. Of course, well this is my favorite thing on earth, talking with fellow horse lovers about the best things on earth, horses and writing books about them. I understand that you are unfortunately not a horse owner, but you do have a love of horses. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your love love affair with horses began? Well, that's a really interesting question uh, because I live in Alabama and, at, you know, when I was growing up, I did not know anyone that owned a horse. I had never really even seen a horse in person, but when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher, Miss Scott, read The Black Stallion to us, and I have been an avid reader since I was a small child. I think I learned how to read when I was four, maybe, and so I just fell in love with the books, and then from the books, there was the movie, and then from the movie, I pestered my parents to take me to the racetrack and, you know, let me be around horses and things like that, so the closest I got to a horse (laughs) really was going to the racetrack, but, you know, I I just loved watching the sport, and I just loved the animals, and I grew up with neighbors that had dogs and cats and whatnot that never really captured my imagination the way a horse did, so... Mm -hmm. It was a very roundabout way to get into it, but I eventually aspired to own a horse. <laughs> it's just one of those things that just hasn't worked out yet. So, but it was just, you know, little kids 
read the Black Stallion, reading the Black Gold and all those books really just kind of got me in love with horses. Well, I truly believe that you have horses in your blood and I know there's going to be a horse in your future. I just have that feeling. And I think that uh, things like that, like animals or horses or, you know, even reading books or or writing a book kind of shows up at the right moment. So I believe that that's definitely in your future. And it warms my heart to hear you mention the Black Stallion and the Walter Farley books, because I fell in love with those books too, as a young person. And it progressed the same way it was the, uh, the books, then the movies, then, you know, going to the Kentucky horse park and you know, wanting to see horse races, like watching them on TV, all of that. So I, I really, I understand. And I share that same sort of love. And you took this love, which is, which is this love for horses and love for the track. And you wrote Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown, which tells the story of Sir Barton, the extraordinary horse that pioneered the crowning achievement in horse racing. Can you talk to us a little bit about your book? Okay, so Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown was conceived as, I, I felt like he had a story that really hadn't been told. And, you know, I spent so much time reading about Triple Crown and feeling like the story that I got in, in each book on the Triple Crown where you get a chapter on each winner really was incomplete. And so the book itself is a long form biography, I guess you want to call it, of him and his origins through his life and his career, and then ultimately his post-racing career. And then at the end, I was able to write an epilogue about the impact that he had on the sport going forward, looking at it from 100 years later. So what I really wanted was to capture the entirety of his story in one book so that when people do go back later, they can use it as a reliable place to get the full story about how the Triple Crown happened so that going forward, we, we understand the origins of it and then, then we can look at the evolution of it over time. Wow, what a cool project and what a testament to such a wonderful horse. And, and I believe you have a copy of your, your book there. Can you hold it up for people watching, listening in on YouTube? Yay, here it is. And it's it's absolutely gorgeous. I love this book. And I you know, I have a, images of it around around my office so I get to look at it every time. <laughs> it's so, well, it's certainly beautiful and it's something to be proud of. It's your book. And yeah. you were sharing with me, and I'd love to I'd love for you to share this with listeners. There's something very special about the particular copy of the book you're you're holding up there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, when you're an author and you sign a contract, they usually send you X number of free copies of the book. So I got mine and I was trying to think of a nice little piece of memorabilia to have from the experience of having the book come out and then promoting it. And I was stumped as to what that could be since I was going to be flying and I knew I was going to be limited in the number of items I could carry with me. So it occurred to me one day, why not just have my book itself be my piece of memorabilia? So every time I've done an event, I've tried to have the book signed by someone I meet at the event or someone that has something to do with the book itself. So as you can see, I've got such an interesting variety of, of signatures. I've got some of the librarians at the Keenan Library that worked on it. I've got Steve Haskin, who wrote the foreword, uh, Bob Baffert and Mike Smith, because you know the Kentucky Derby Museum brought me in for an event, and they 
took the book from me and had them sign it without me knowing. <laughs> like stuck it back to me. Like, oh my gosh, here's Bob Afford and Mike Smith. And I just was absolutely floored because I never thought I'd ever get to see them, let alone have them sign something. And then, you know, just Steve Cawthon and a bunch of people. Uh, Jean Creguet signed it back here because I was running out of space in the front. So just anytime I, I had a chance to meet someone, I would try to get them to sign it. And I saw you had Milt Toby on the podcast earlier. Milt signed it for me and other people from the university press. And yeah, so it's a nice little like way to remember all the adventures I've had (laughs) over the last year with the book. I think that is such a great idea. And what a cool way to remember all those special moments on the people that were involved in and touched the book or people that you met along the way. I just thought, that was such a neat idea. And I have not ever heard anything like that before. That's very unique. So I, I, I wanted I just, I just needed some little thing that I could carry around. And since, you know, I mean, like I read a book, I mean, why not a book? And, you know, when you're a kid, you have an autograph book that you might carry with you at Disney World or something where you would get cast members to sign it and whatnot. And I thought, well, why not just do that? <laughs> it's brilliant. I, I love it. I, I really wanted listeners to hear that story. I think that's so cool and so unique. And there's, there's another really cool thing that accompanied the writing of this book. You started the Sir Barton Project, which is, and it still remains a blog, but it was a blog where readers can find out even more about the era in the sport of kings. Uh, and it's a really unique approach to have a blog accompany the writing of a book. Can you tell us about the blog, what readers can find there, and how it helped you through the journey of writing your book? So... When I started writing the book, I didn't know anything about the process of actually publishing a book. I just assumed I had to write the whole thing and then um, find a publisher, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the midst of writing, I discovered that um, I needed to start with a book proposal. And then in, in doing the book proposal, they said, you need to establish a platform to you know, establish yourself as an expert or someone with, you know, some sort of knowledge or expertise about what you're doing. And in order to have that footprint, since I'm, this is my first project like this, I was transitioning careers. I thought, why not just start a blog? That way, stuff that I'm doing, I can go ahead and put online for people to read and generate excitement about what I'm doing, but also write about topics that I can't put in the book. Because a lot of times, and you've written books, so you know, you're kind of limited to a word count. Mm -hmm. And when I finally finished the book, it was about 110,000 words. And they said, well, sorry, you need it to be, you know, under 100. So I had to start cutting, you know, content out of the book. So the blog became a way to, you know, topics that I was working on that I couldn't actually put in the book. I could put in the blog. And that would get people excited about the book itself, but also kind of add to the experience of writing. So, for example, in 2018, it was 100th anniversary of the first horse to traverse the Triple Crown Trail. And his name was War Cloud. And I, I can't put that in the book. It's just that story is way too long. I don't, it doesn't belong in a book of Hester Barton. So I wrote a three-part blog series about War Cloud running the Triple Crown Trail for the first time and, you know, talked about his derby and the split preakness that year and just that kind of stuff. And so that's the blog became this, you know, platform establishing thing for me, but it also became this repository for people to go and and read a little bit more about the era 
because, you know, you, you see bits and pieces of history in different places, like ABR and the Blood Horse and things like that. But for me, my purposes was I wanted the blog to be, you know, I, you're, if you're reading my book, you can go on the Sir Martin College Project blog and read some ancillary things that kind of add to the experience of that era. That is such a great idea and such a cool concept. I mean, because I, my next question for you is how did you research the book? And so I assume, you know, you're saying you had all this content and I'm sure through your research, you discovered all this interesting stuff that can't live inside a book with a word count limitation. So the, what a great idea to start a blog, not only to generate yourself as an expert, but also share that additional information that you found so interesting in your research, but wasn't, wasn't enough to include in the book. So can you talk a little bit about how you researched the book uh, and, and what you discovered there? Okay. The research process is interesting if you've not done anything like this before. Like I know a lot of people, when they write fiction, they think non you know, fiction and nonfiction are not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. Fiction requires research, but it, it requires, you know, an imagination and an investment in a world that you create. Whereas with nonfiction, it's, you know, it's learning about a world that's already happened and then figuring out the information you need to create the world that you will inhabit in your book. All right. I have an academic background, excuse me. So I am accustomed to doing research. I have a master's degree in English. I have a technical writing certification. So I've done a lot of research. To do this book, though, was a learning experience, for first and foremost, for me, because I've done lots of long projects, but not like this. I started with the Daily Racing Form Archive. So if your listeners have never heard of this, the University of Kentucky has a daily racing form archive that starts in 1896 when the daily racing form actually started itself and then runs through about the mid 1950s. Most of the content between 1896 and about 1923, 24 is pretty complete. So I started there because I needed all the form charts and all the other information that went into the actual races that he ran. And then from there, I, I used resources like newspapers.com, which I still maintain a subscription to, to look at newspapers from that era. And that those are helpful because digital allows you to focus on specific terms rather than having to go through a big book of, you know, hard copy and having to scan for what you need. And then in on top of that, I made several trips to the Kingwood Library to do hard copy research I couldn't do online. So Thoroughbred Record, Blood Horse, other resources like that. And then if you had the ability to pan over in my office, you would see the very large shelf books that <laughs> were acquired in the process of doing this. I had about probably a good two dozen books that I ended up acquiring over the course of the writing that would have either tangential contextual information or, you know, just background information about the horse. And those were great because when I, they would have sources that I hadn't found and I could go into their bibliographies and then find that information and then go from there. So, and then anytime I do something like this and I talk about the research, I have to send lots and lots of credit and props to Dorothy R's. Because Dorothy Arge wrote the book on Man War called Man War: A Legend Like Lightning, which came out in 2008. 
And a lot of what Dorothy used in researching Man of War's story was relevant to what I'm doing because they were running, you know, in parallel with each other. So I used Dorothy's book also as a, a nice jumping off point to conducting my research. Wow. So, so that, so there, there's a lot that went into what you were doing here and, and how, so how long did the book take for you to, to complete? And then how long did you research before you actually started the writing process or did they kind of go hand in hand? I'm wondering. Uh, for the most part, the research, I had to start researching before I could start writing, but I did start writing pretty early like I was still teaching when I started writing this book so about a year into trying to do the project I discovered that I could no longer teach and write because it was just entirely too much work to try to teach the classes I was doing and research a book on the side and have children and a husband so (laughs) I like quit my job and started doing this. And so I really probably started writing in 2014. I had done the daily racing form, uh, basic kind of research prior to that, and then started um, generating the first draft from there. And I started writing like hardcore in probably 2015, like full-time writing and finished it in 2017. But the, like the finishing part was a different experience than the beginning part because the finishing part, I actually had a contract by then and a deadline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to, you know, do it in a very specific amount of time. So I, I had to like, that's one thing about writing nonfiction. If people haven't tried something like that yet, and I wrote a series of blog posts about writing a nonfiction book and the process that goes into it, I had to start setting deadlines for myself and scheduling out how I was going to do things. So like, okay, you have two weeks to do this chapter. Mm. (laughs) You have two weeks to do this chapter. And that way I had programmed in enough time to give myself about six months to edit it. So I actually finished it in October of 2017. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually finished writing. Like, this doesn't seem possible. And then gave myself about six months to edit the darn thing and get it ready for publication. Yeah, there, there is, there's a lot that goes on in the back end. Once you finish, finally finish a manuscript, there's, there's a whole lot on the, on the back end to get it to the right place. So, and it sounds like, like scheduling, I truly believe in working, even if you don't have a deadline, working against a schedule and holding yourself accountable for a routine of writing. And it sounds like that system really worked for you in order to push this book through and get it finished. But it, it was a necessity by a certain point because I had a contract. And the, from the very beginning, from the moment I conceived this project, it was, it must be out before Triple Crown 2019. Like, has to be out. Because the Triple Crown, like he ran the Kentucky Derby on May 10th, and then he ran the Preakness on May 14th, and then he ran in the Belmont on June 11th. Like those were my target dates. And so from the moment we said go, this is the deadline. And everything else had to fall into place. So as I was writing, I'm, you know, I'm setting deadlines for myself, obviously, because you, you need that accountability. But it was always to the end of, this has to be out, <laughs> you know, spring of 2019. Otherwise you, you miss out on that 
automatic like joy from the triple crown season and the connection between the horse and the milestone and all that stuff so it was like there was this drop dead deadline like dude you got to make this and then there was all the other deadlines that had to go into writing that and it wasn't just for me it was also for my family because I needed to be able to tell my you know my husband or my children you know this is what we're this is what mom's trying to do and this is when we need to do it by you know that way we were making sure we had time built in to have a life. I mean, I couldn't just do this. I had to be able to, you know, go to school with my kids when they needed me or to go on family vacation or whatever. So thank goodness, you know, this, the deadlines fell when they did because once I was done writing, I was able to really relax and be like, yeah, <laughs> let's go to Disney World. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you deserve that. And congratulations for pushing through and getting it finished and for releasing it around a time that's so important for the book in the history of thoroughbred racing, because ideally, releasing it around that time is, is so smart because the media are interested in the Triple Crown. The book plays into that. You know, there's events around the Triple Crown. There's, there's so many opportunities to get the word out about, about the book by timing it to this event. So that that's brilliant. And congratulations. You deserve to go to Disneyland. It's a, it's a big undertaking to get a book of this magnitude into the world. And I was wondering, since you did so much deep, intense research, did you discover any surprising information about Sir Barton while you were conducting your research? Like anything that kind of sticks out as interesting or that did not make the book? Well, nothing that didn't make the book. Um, the thing about the book was that uh, we had to do our best to keep the stuff that was really, really you know important to the story. Because I mean, ultimately, yes, it's true and it's fact, but it's a story. You know, it's a story of his life and his career. And and uh, nothing I can think of that didn't make the book. I mean, everything that was cut from the book was stuff that's like, well, that's interesting, but you know, it's not vital. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, in doing the research, the most surprising thing, well, there are two very surprising things I discovered. One, that I really don't want to give away. Oh, okay. <laughs> because if Please, no, it, no spoilers. No spoilers. Read the book. I want people to read it, but okay. it was a very surprising to me why he ended up in the Belmont. And let me just put that little like tidbit out there because most people are accustomed to, you know, if you run in the Derby, well, you're going to run in the Preakness. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And then if you're going to run the, win the Preakness, why wouldn't you go to the Belmont? Like this is a natural progression of events for us. So the idea that in this era, that that wasn't an automatic is just mind blowing. <laughs> so the, you know, once I figured out why, he ended up in the Belmont because if you read other books on Triple Crown, it's it's almost like this assumption, like you're just gonna you're just gonna go. Um, it wasn't automatic for him, and there was a very good reason why he ended up in the Belmont. And then the other surprising thing was after years of hearing, and you still see it out there, he was the rabbit for his stablemate Billy Kelly, and that's the only reason why he went to Louisville for the Derby, and then to discover that it was actually the opposite case that he was there mainly because they felt like he was more likely to get the distance and actually win the race rather than his stablemate because the stablemate had been such a successful sprinter. Mm. And Sir Barton had more of a distance pedigree than Billy Kelly did. So as you read the newspapers going into the Derby in 1919, he was actually 
favored over his stablemate. So it was nice. I was surprised by that, like, refutation of something I had seen, you know, for years, just completely undone with, like, you know, a handful of newspaper reports. Wow. I, I just like anytime I do the um, the presentation on the book, I always put up the newspaper clippings of "Look, not the rabbit." <laughs> and for listeners who might not know what the rabbit is, can you can you yeah. explain that? So, if you have a horse that you know is maybe a closer, so someone who likes to make their run at the end of a race, you might put a rabbit in there to sprint basically the first half of the race or so, and and like set the pace so quickly that the horses that might be the stayers that might last the whole time and want to set the pace are forced to go as fast as that sprinter and then burn out their energy early so that the horse that comes in and makes that closing kick doesn't have to deal with all these horses that are still you know maintaining a lot of energy so the rabbit is the horse that you put in there to burn everybody else out (laughs) so you can bring your closer in Well, it's, it's, it's not everyone's favorite tactic, but it's not a, you know, it's not an uncommon event. I mean, even still a hundred years later, you still hear about, you know, all this horses in here as a rabbit for their stable mate. That's fascinating. I've actually never heard that before. Of course, I'm a quarter horse girl, so, (laughs) so I don't follow horse racing that closely, but wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I just... I've heard, you know, you know, rabbits, if you're watching the third racing, you know about rabbits and, you know, the whole tactic. So to have the roles reversed in the process of researching this book was really interesting and something that it just gives me so much satisfaction to go into a presentation and basically undo everything people have learned about the horse over time. All you think you know, you don't actually know. (laughs) Uh, That's so cool. (laughs) I, I, I saw your interview with Milt and I'm the same way as Milt Toby. I try to find stories that people think they know and do a deep dive and really find the little nuances that you lose over time. And so I I take inspiration from what Milt says about that whenever I start doing my own research and my own writing choices for, you know, the stuff that I do for the different websites. That's really smart. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed Milt's interview. And and I I love him. He's we're both American Horse Publications members and, and we've connected multiple times over the years. And I really enjoyed having him on the on the show and uh, I'll add in the show notes his episode number so people yes, can please do. Yeah, so people can check that out too. So going back to the Triple Crown. I mean, I'm the, you know, only 13 horses have ever won mm-hmm. all three races, which is to me that seems like a, a incredibly small number. What are your thoughts on the Triple Crown as a grouping and then what do you think it takes really takes for a horse to win all three after having done so much in-depth research on Sir Barton? The Triple Crown is, it's one of those things that the the sport really needed. Um, England has their version, and we took inspiration for ours from England. Now, the English don't value theirs as much as we do. They have their last horse to win the English Triple Crown in 1970. So it's been a while, and, you know, their English classics, like the um, St. Leger and the 2000 Guineas, which the Epsom Derby, you know, they they have their models in the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. So 
for us, we needed that that focal point to have an entrance for non-fans to really access the sport. Mm. So they were always trying to start a triple crown in horse racing. If you go back and do research into the late 19th century, into the early 20th century, there were other attempts to do something like this. And so the three that we have are not a natural sequence of events. If you look at the way that they're structured, like let's run in Louisville, then travel to Baltimore and then travel again to New York. But I think it's fitting because if you have a horse that's good enough to go to the Derby and win, then, okay, well, if you're really that good, why don't you go to Baltimore? Can you do this again in two weeks? All right. You win in two weeks at a mile and three sixteenths, which is only a mile, a sixteenth of a mile shorter than the Derby. So basically you run 20 furlongs in, you know, two weeks, then go to Belmont (laughs) and win at 12 furlongs. And, you know, that's why there's only been 13 because it's in the early spring of your three-year-old year to have a horse that's mature enough to carry their speed and to endure over that long of a distance in that short of a time takes an extraordinary course. And, you know, you'll look at the thirties and forties, there were far more triple crown winners than there are now. There's different reasons for that. I still think there are plenty of horses now as there were back then that were, that are capable, but it's all about like, timing and also just sheer luck (laughs) or than anything else because if you have a horse you know exactly how prone horses are to doing dumb things and having crazy things happen to them (laughs) so we have 13 triple crown winners because we've had 13 horses that have had everything fall into place for them including the breeding and the conditioning that allow them to run these long distance races early in their three-year-old year and do it in a short span of time. That's why Pharaoh is so beloved because, you know, Chrome before, before him and other horses attempted it and it fell short. And it finally, and I think Bob Afford even said it, it was like, it takes an extraordinary horse to do this. And Baffert of all people should know, I mean, he tried to do it three times and, and didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we value the triple crown because it's the standard of what a horse can do. And it is, you know, it's just something romantic for people who are not horse people to really go for it's, like winning the Super Bowl or <laughs> winning the World Series or something, you need that accomplishment that marks this is what is great about the sport. And then the reason why we only have 13 is because for whatever reason, these 13 horses have had everything go right. And the right time, the right conditioning, the right pedigree, whatever, to end up doing this. And sometimes, like Count Fleet, they never run again. Mm-hmm. And then other times, like Seattle Slough, they have a great career, and then they go on to a great stud career, and they make a mark. So that's the thing about the Triple Crown. You can concentrate all the great things about horse racing in one specific event and kind of hold up these horses as this is an example of what's great about the sport. Wow. And, and the, the coolest part about your research in this book is that Sir Barton was the very first one 
yes. do this. So he yes. I like to say that he he may not have been the one that did it the best. Like you can look at Secretariat, maybe he's the one that did it the best and did it the fastest, but he was the more the one that did it first. And so his importance is that, you know, he would he had the fortitude and the skill and the talent to do this, you know, run the Derby and then four days later run the, the Preakness. And then, you know, three weeks later or so run into Belmont and, and to, you know, be sound the whole time and to have everything fall into place. Like you had to have that pioneer. And I think that's what I love most about him is that he's that pioneer. Like you just can't help loving a horse that's just like, you know, I did it. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you've, you've done him a huge service in his honor and his memory by sharing his story for readers. I, I This is fascinating. I feel like we could talk about this for ages. So I found this really interesting as I was galloping around your website and doing a little research for the uh, questions I wanted to ask in the interview is, you know, you, you were a technical writer and a college writing instructor, which led you to transition into a career as a proofreader and an editor. Right. And now you are on the other side of that. You are an author of your, of your first book. And I'm sure that once you do that first one, there's many more in your future. So I'm sure, I'm sure you're on to your next writing project, which we can talk about in a little <laughs> But what, what was it like going from the proofreading and the editing side of the writing business to actually being the author? And I, I imagine you, you, did, you do edit your own work, but I imagine then it went to maybe another editor because you spent so much time with, with, your, with your work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the uh, editing and the proofreading actually were, this is what I'm going to do to make money while I write. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> I, I started out teaching, like I got my master's in 2002 and immediately started teaching, which is pretty much what I had intended to do. You know, I'd always wanted to write also, but I had spent a lot of my undergraduate and graduate work really focused on teaching other people writing because it was something that I had not had a ton of when I was growing up and going through school. I had some really good teachers, just not a ton of background in actual writing. And since I was such an avid reader and then turned into, you know, a, a writer that apparently had some talent at it because I kept getting good grades at it. I really wanted to teach it to other people to kind of like be that person that says, you know, it doesn't matter what your skill level is or what your talent level is. You can do this. You just need practice. And, you know, that's what I was teaching. And then once I decided to quit teaching and start writing, I really needed a back, a, a job. <laughs> so I started proofreading and I mostly um, have done like dissertations and theses and things like that. I've edited a couple of eBooks and, and things. And I've, you know, I want to break into copy editing if I can, because there's nothing more fun than going through someone else's book and like, here's all the things that you need to do that, you know, to help kind of shore up what you've already done and to make this clearer. So I, I enjoyed that because it's what I did when I was teaching. I did a lot of proofreading and editing for my students and giving them feedback and saying, this is what you can do to improve this particular piece of writing. This is, you know, how I would envision if you want to take it to, you know, to do this thing, you need to, here's this list of recommendations. And so I, I tried to do the same when I was doing editing and proofreading for other people, you know, resumes and dissertations and theses, like, here's what you need to change. Here's 
why you need to change it and, you know, go forth and please take my recommendations. But, you know, I'm not like the law. So if you don't take it, okay. So it's easy to do other people's work because it is, you know, I, I can just look at it objectively and like, this is the impression that you're leaving by doing this. Like, here's my feedback on it. But then with my own stuff, it's like, I, I'm a writer. Like, this is great. Like, what are you talking about? I don't need editing. And then, uh, <laughs> but I have my husband helps with my stuff. So he's my first line of defense. And when I edit things and he, he goes in and he's like, do you really want to use this word? Like, this word, do you understand what this means? Like, do you think other people are going to get what you're trying to say? I'm like, please, what are you talking about? This is wonderful. Um, and then when I was at the Sir Martin book, you know, I had an editor uh, for our imprint, Jamie Nicholson, who actually edited the book before the copy editor got a hold of it. So that was the next level of offense. So I, you know, technical writing and the proofreading stuff was the, this is my professional job that please pay me to do because I need money so that I can do this other thing that I really like. <laughs> but if I had my, like, my vision for going forward is this is what I want to do. Like what I'm doing now, like this book and, and future projects. And then I write for a couple of different websites doing columns for them. Like that's what I want to do. You know, if I had a racetrack, I would be the person that's there in the morning going like, like, I'm going to write up your workout. <laughs> Tell me your story. <laughs> let me, you know, let me do your publicity. Let me do, you know, let me write a story about you. And I've got other projects I'm working on in addition to this one. But I, I really like editing. It's just, it's a different, it's a different part of my brain than the writing. Mm -hmm. And I, I enjoy doing it, though, because I do enjoy making other people's work shine because they deserve it. I mean, they put a lot of work into it. Yeah. And I love that you said that because editing is so very important to any finished book that enters the world. And, and I love that you said, you know, it, you cannot edit your own work. You need a, another professional in the mix to help you with that. And I love that you just clarified that. And you are a professional editor, but you spend so much time with your own work you're so close to it that you stop seeing things, you know, because you've spent years with this project and that, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, always had that first line of defense. My husband is also my first line of defense before I send it off to for the professional editing and yeah. then the copy editing. So, uh, so it's interesting to hear that you had that same experience. Well, you have to have an editor. Cause I know like really quick, I had to go through and proofread the book before it went to press. And so they're like, here's a PDF of the book, go through and proofread this and find errors. And then, you know, let us know what the errors are. And so I spent, I think I did two passes through the book, like, you know, trying to find errors, like this comma is out of place, you know, this word, whatever. And then I got the book in like the physical book in and I started reading it and I was like, I miss that. And so within like five minutes of having the book, I found three errors. <laughs> it happens to everyone. Believe me, you are not alone. But yeah, I, I understand. Uh, so in, when I get my first PDF, I usually print it out because yes. for some reason I find errors better when it's not on a screen, when it's actually yes. on physical paper. But but you're not alone. This happens to everyone. We all go through that. <laughs> Uh, so Jennifer, you know, given your lush background with you know the editing, proofreading, having taught writing, now having written your own book, doing columns for for publications, what 
would be your advice to an aspiring author or writer who is feeling a little stopped? Like, what would you, what would your recommendation be to that person? Well, the thing about writing and the thing that I, I learned in my time teaching was that, you know, my students would come in and they would be of different backgrounds and they would talk about, I, I always had them do something very early in class that was called, I said, are you a good writer or a bad writer? Write me a journal entry and assess yourself and tell me why you're good or bad. And interestingly, most of the time people told me they were bad writers and they would give me a list of reasons why. And it would be something as simple as, you know, my grammar and my mechanics are terrible. Well, you know, that's something you can work on. It's like a math, like math, you can just learn it. And then they would talk about, well, you know, I, I don't find myself very interesting or, you know, word choice and, and things like that. And I, I had to, I did this because I needed them to understand that I, didn't start out to be the writer that I am like I have you know I have teachers in my family so I'm used to a lot of uh, writing and reading and things like that because that's you know always something I've done but I didn't start out as the writer that I am now I had to become that over time with practice and so I had to talk to my students and just remind them like you know it's a skill that you may not be, you may not excel at it in the way that you might excel at other things, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And so anything that has value is something you should, you know, pursue. And the more you practice, the more you are accustomed to doing the writing, the more it will be easier and you'll be happier with the, the end product. So, and, you know, I have this TED talk that I want to do where we talk about, like, I want to call it the myth of the bad writer, but really what it's about is this, you know, getting over failure and learning that even if you're not the greatest at something, there's still value in doing it. So if you're a new writer and you're really nervous and you're like, no, I don't know about this, like, there's value in trying and value in practice. And so, you might not be able to do everything you want to do the first time out, but that doesn't mean that later you won't find the thing you're looking for. So I'm lucky that I had this book published. It All of the things fell into place for me, but this did not happen overnight. <laughs> this happened. This took five years, five years to do this. And it, but it, I felt like it was something valuable that was worth pursuing. So that's why I really want other authors to take away from this is that you will find a place for yourself or for your, you know, your skill level. If you give yourself time and you practice. I love that. That is wonderful advice. And, you know, and I think what you really spoke a, a truth there because, you know, Stephen King, even if you read his book on writing, he had epic fails and total rejection. And but he just kept writing and kept practicing and, and finally hit with Carrie. But he was writing for ever since he was like super young, like, you know, not even a teenager yet, what was writing and it was being rejected. And he just practiced and stayed persistent and pursued it because he wanted it. You know, he really, yeah. really wanted it. And so that that's really wonderful advice. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a little, you know, whipped cream on top of the hot chocolate here is with your very first book, you were nominated for a Dr. Tony Ryan book award, which honors 
the be- the year's best book about thoroughbred racing. How did it make you feel to be nominated for such a prestigious literary award with your first book? That had to feel so amazing. Well, after um, <laughs> after about five years, of, okay, so I started this project in summer 2013. And it was published in the spring of 2019. So I, I literally spent like five years of my life doing this. And I went out on a huge limb by quitting my job <laughs> and starting this book without any hope of being published, without any expectation about how this is going to work out, where was this going to go. I just wanted, I just felt like it was a story that needed to be told and that with the hubris of a writer, that I was the person to do it, okay? So I was thrilled beyond belief to be nominated for the award because it was, it was this nice validation of not just my work because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I spent a long time doing this, and it's nice to be recognized for the work you've done, but also for him and the, hor- the horse, I mean, honestly, it was, this was less about me and more about him because one of the things that as a historian, that's important to me is that the stories of our past get told and that they get told well, because it's very easy if you look at the historic record for things to get lost or for stories to be changed over time. And so the impression that you have of, you know, an event or, or a person or, or whatever is changed by the way the story is told. And I really just, every time I read something about him, just wanted to like, you know, go in with a red pen and just start making edits to it. So it was nice to have the committee recognize the work and to recognize that, you know, his story not only deserved to be told, but apparently that it was done well. So it's very, it's extremely gratifying. I, mean, I, I can't lie. It's just, it's just wonderful. <laughs> well, congratulations. I mean, you, you. you deserve it. And, and, you know, I, I am super happy for you. I mean, there's nothing like being acknowledged for, for all those years of hard work and, and pursuing your writing dream and taking the risk that you did and look, you know, and they paid off, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you did not let fear hold you back. You said, I'm doing this. Your gut told you to do this. You followed the muse and everything ended up lining up, including your book being traditionally published. Yeah. yeah. What was it like working with the university press of Kentucky? How did you develop your relationship with, with them? How did, how did that all start? Well, it's a, I write about it and I did a series of blog posts for Old Smoke on their Dark Tuesday blog and I actually did a three part about how to write a nonfiction book and I talked about my journey through writing a nonfiction book so that other people knew what kind of went into it because I didn't really know when I started. I was like, I'm going to write a book. I mean, how hard is this? Because um, I mean, you know, everybody, people write books all the time. What is this? Um, I had actually started writing a book without a publisher and had assumed, I, I think I talked about this earlier, that I had to write the book before I actually had it, like, started shopping at the publishers. I found out uh, later that I needed to do a different process and go with a book proposal and then go from there. So I had a book proposal out there. I queried some agents. I had a little bit of interest, but I didn't have anybody bite. And then one day I got an email from Ed Bowen who is another writer and historian in, in horse racing. And Ed said, you know, hey, have you looked at the University Press of Kentucky? 
in the same week that this happens, the gentleman that turned out to be the editor of the imprint book is published in, Jamie Nicholson reached out to me on social media and said, hey, have you looked at Universal Press of Kentucky? And I was like, okay, this is a sign. Hello. So I, um, you know, sent in the book proposal to the acquisitions editor, um, Andine Dotson, who is fabulous and wonderful. And, you know, they contacted me and they said, you know, we're interested. And then we had a conversation. We hammered out a contract and everything after that was, it was lovely. I mean, they're working with the small press is really nice because you get a lot more personal attention than you might with some, a, a larger public publisher and not that a larger publisher is a terrible thing, but it is nice to like, I know those people. Like I have gone up to the press and met everyone in the press <laughs> and I know them like they're friends of mine now. And, you know, I was able to work really closely starting with Andine as my acquisitions editor and then with Jamie doing the actual, you know, writing part and then our, you know, the layout and all the people that came after training the manuscript and then marketing and everyone, it's, it was nice to do a small press because I knew that if I needed something, it would be taken care of pretty quickly. So they were really, really good about everything. And then when it came to the marketing, you know, they, they ask you to fill out this long document and give them, you know, suggestions on marketing because they don't always know all the same things you do about your industry. And so they would do the reaching out. They came up with the, you know, the press releases, the imagery and, and all the marketing materials. I mean, this standee is from them. And <laughs> I have all these postcards that they gave me. So they've been wonderful. And I can't speak highly enough about them. Like a, a small press is, and I didn't know the university press would publish a book like what I have. So I had never even thought about going to the university press until people approached me and I said, well, okay. And then they said, we have this imprint. All right, cool. <laughs> it worked out really well. And I like that you mentioned that too, because again, you know, that's what this podcast is all about is authors uniting and collaboration and sharing knowledge. And that is exactly mm -hmm. how you discovered your publishers through other authors reaching out yes. to you and, and kind of sharing, sharing what they know. So it's like, there's a, there's a special synergy and magic I feel all around you know, your projects and what you're up to. And I, and I loved hearing about how the publisher was to work with. And they do, they do have knowledge of the racing industry because they publish other thoroughbred racing books, right? So it seems like it would be a yeah. good fit for, for the work that you are doing. Well, they had, they had started an imprint and Milt's book on Shurgar was the first book in this imprint, but they had also published other books on horse racing. Jamie Nicholson had a book about the Kentucky Derby that had come out several years before. He had his book uh, called Never Say Die, which they also published. So they're in Kentucky. <laughs> so it's like a natural fit mm -hmm. that, you know, it worked out the way it did. And I really, I was really happy that they have an imprint that is devoted only to horses and horses in history. And so far the books have been about horse racing, but I don't think they're necessarily just limiting it to horse racing. So if you're an equine rider, that has a book that you think might fit within the imprint, regardless of whether it's history or some other, you know, pursuit. You, I mean, I would suggest inquiring with them and, and approaching them and seeing if they might be interested in bringing you in as part of the imprint. 
That's great. And then when you approached them, you did that without an agent, correct? You just, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Nice. I have, I have tried to get an agent for both my projects. Like I, I have this, this one, I tried to get that one. And then for the, the one I'm working on presently, I try to get an, an agent for that one too. And the hard part about agents is, I mean, even though I, I actually already have a book out now, they're still conservative about what they pick projects they they pick projects you know they can sell mm -hmm. and I think the hard part about certain kinds of books that agents don't always know how to market the book and if they don't know how to market it or sell it then they feel like they can't be your advocate and that's what an agent is supposed to be anyway they're supposed mm -hmm. to be the author's advocate so I I appreciate all the agents that said, you know, I'm really interested and I feel like what you're doing is really valuable, but I don't know, I don't feel like I'm quite the right fit. And like, I didn't, I wasn't offended by that at all because I can understand looking at a book like Sir Barton and going, <laughs> you know, it's like, I know people will read it. I just don't know how to sell it. It's like, well, I mean, I understand that because, you know, I, I feel you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think that's, it's a, it's actually a common, situation where agents reject horse based books because they don't understand the niche or the market and they, they right. will say it's too niche. So I think it's a common thing that happens to a lot of authors pitching for agents. But what I love that you shared is you don't necessarily need an agent to represent you to get published. I mean, there's independent publishing, but you did, you went with a small press and mm -hmm. you're having tons of success and they were very supportive. So like a lot of the the processes, you don't have to have every single step in order to successfully get your book out into the world. So I love that you shared that. Yeah, I was really surprised that I was able to get get a contract with an agent because I was just kind of like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I don't have representation because I don't really, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm new and I felt like I needed that intermediary there to help me find the right place. But it's one of the nice things about working in equine publishing, whether you're doing fiction or nonfiction, is that the community is small enough where you know that if you have a question, you could probably find someone that can help you answer it. You know, like you're in American Horse Publications, as am I. And like, I know that if I needed something, I could probably go and ask someone within the membership and they could help. If they can't help me answer that question, somebody else can Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, you're speaking to the power of network and collaboration and partnering and, and having relationships with other authors so we can all take care of each other and, and uh, help support each other's books, and which is, is cool. I think we're stronger when we work together. I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. Is there one thing that you wish you had known when you started out on your journey as an author? Well, I wish I had known earlier about book proposals because I would have done that first. <laughs> I had no idea, but see, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in academics and so I was accustomed to just doing the work and then finding the appropriate place after the work was done. Cause you know, I spent years teaching and doing feedback to other people and I was just, I was okay with nose to the grindstone and getting the work done. And if I had known ahead of time about the process of nonfiction, I would have been able to plan out how I I structured the writing part and and you know had a little bit more luxury in understanding how I needed to plan things out. You know, especially when it comes to having a family, just really understanding 
how I needed to parcel out my day. So if I know about the book proposal stuff ahead of time, that would be nice. I, I knew ahead of time it was going to be humbling to do this. And I was prepared for that. Like when I ask people for feedback, I don't get upset when people offer me comments because, you know, I've done enough feedback for other people that it's, it's fine when other people give me their input because, you know, it's, it's not personal. It's, it's about making the work shine, but I didn't realize how daunting it can be to sit in your office by yourself day after day and go, I'm going to write a book and people are going to read it. And then you have a day where you're like, I didn't get anything done. <laughs> and you're like, I got to come back and do this tomorrow. And then, you know, get over that feeling of no one gives a crap about what I'm doing. And it turns out people do. And that's one of the things about doing the blog and interacting on social media that's really nice is that people are interested in what you have to say and, and they do want to read it. But I don't think I really understood exactly the how daunting the whole process of doing the book was before I did it. I just like, well, you know, I've written all these papers and, you know, done all this work as a teacher and technical writing and da da da. Like I can do this. And then you have a day where like you've spent six hours trying to find a particular piece of information and you come up absolutely dry. Like, well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> like, but you have to have those days in order to really understand the days where you're super productive and appreciate those. Absolutely. Any creative endeavor, particularly a book, is a monstrous challenge. And there are those days. And it and it is a it can be a very isolating and sometimes lonely experience because you and you alone are solely responsible for creating this thing that never existed before. And it, it can, and I think the thing too, is like when you think about the book in its entirety or having it complete, it can be very overwhelming. Yeah. That's why, why I feel like it's better to, to narrow down and, you know, just focus on one step at a time, one step at a time and create a schedule like you did around getting that created. Yes. Because if you think of the whole thing, then overwhelm kicks in, all your fear kicks in, and then you avoid, right? You do like yeah. little tasks or to-do lists or you go deep diving on the internet and, and then, and then you come up sometimes dry. So, but, but that's part of the process and part of the journey and having overcome that is such a feeling of amazing success and relief, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you've done that. So living where I live, like I live in Alabama and so no one that I know really knows anything about what I do. Mm. So I would get a lot of the bless your heart look like bless her heart. You crazy girl working on this book about horse racing in Alabama, you know, and then at the end of the day, the only person, the only adult I talked to is my husband and I'm like, let me tell you all the things I did today and all the things I found out. My husband doesn't have a background in horse racing or horses or, you know, anything like what I do for that matter. So he's still learning as he goes with me and he's learned way more in the last five years than he ever thought would. <laughs> and so he, he would be the beneficiary of all my pins up, like, you know, things I need to say about my day. And he's like, mm -hmm, uh -huh. so, you know, it's isolating to write. It's, I think it, it was even more challenging because I live here and people were like, and then I would go to Kentucky and everybody's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you got to go where your community is. And that, you know, it's like you are a little isolated from like the horse racing epicenter yeah. of the world. But, but it wasn't it in 
satisfying to know that there are people that understand what you're doing in other places in the world when you went and you did your research and, and your thought when you were surrounded by that community. Oh yeah, definitely. When I would go in, now when I go in the in the Kingland Library, it's like walking into cheers. <laughs> like, yay! Jennifer's here. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's so great and 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 so true. And and I think you just spoke eloquently about what it's like to be an author and and very real experience that you that you have writing your book. I wanted to circle back really quickly and talk about the book proposal. You okay. mentioned the book proposal a couple times. Like, so what? In your experience with nonfiction, you wish you had known about the book proposal. What specifically do you wish you had known that that you that you have that and you pitch it out before you start the writing of the project, or what do you wish you had known about the book proposal? Well, I didn't even know that it was a thing. <laughs> like I've written proposals before because I had done proposals for you know as part of my job, and so I knew how to write a proposal. But the idea that you write a book and then you pitch it out as a proposal. You know, that, that was something, after I figured it out, it made sense. But to begin with, you know, I'm used to fiction. So most people, when you write fiction, you write the book, and then you send it out in the world and try to find someone to represent you or, you know, a publisher or, or however you approach it. So I was accustomed to that. I, I knew, once I figured out what the process was for nonfiction, I knew I could write a book proposal, and I have gotten compliments online. Apparently, they're very thorough. <laughs> and and you know good and I'm like okay well you know hey technical writer <laughs> but I just I didn't know it was a thing I, I it made sense once I figured it out but it was just one of those like I wish I had done more research into the process of writing nonfiction before I actually started doing it because I kind of just threw myself into it like I can do this because I have this you know all this background and all this experience I can just jump right into it and so for someone who's thinking about doing something like what I've done, I really do recommend, like, you know, you have this great idea, you should totally pursue it, but understand the practical side of what you're doing before you start the creative side of it so that you're not wasting valuable time, mm. you know, doing things that you could have taken care of very early on. So because I, I literally had to stop writing to do the book proposal. Like I was writing the book and once I figured out the process of nonfiction and then looked at my calendar, I was like, oh man, I have to do this and it has to happen. You know, this like process has to play out by this date. You know, if I had started it in 2013, when I originally conceived the project, I would have been a heck of a lot farther along and done my, and not been so you know, crazy trying to get things done later. So that's one piece of advice I do give people is like, before you start the actual writing, make sure you understand the practical side of what you're doing because the writing is actually the easiest part. That is wonderful advice and so true. You educate yourself on the process and the system. And, and yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you address these sort of, topics around writing nonfiction in that blog post series that you've written. I'd, I'd love to include the links in your show yeah. notes so, so other authors can read those blog posts that you've written, if you, yeah, if you can, wouldn't mind sharing those. I can send you those. It's called, So You Think You Want to Write a Book? <laughs> Perfect. I had, I had originally going to publish it on my blog, and then the guys at Old Smoke, which is a brand of horse racing clothing, 
we they did a, a, a Sarbarty shirt last year, so we were working together on that. And they were they said, well, we'll we'll host the blog series if you want. And I said, okay, and I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. So it's on their Dark Tuesday blog, and I'll send you a link to it. But I I did it because you know I really wanted a, a place to put the experience of writing a book and that people could go back and refer to it later mm-hmm. so that because you know it's not enough to write a full book about but it's enough to write probably a good like eight to ten thousand words on because there was so much that went into it and like I think as a writer we're so accustomed to doing the creative part because that's what we do like that's what we get into writing for so we really enjoy writing and that's what you want your job to be and when I started transitioning from teaching to actually writing full-time it I didn't make that practical side part of the transition Mm. because it had been a while since I'd done it and you know I had spent my years teaching and spent my years writing to give other people feedback and so that's just what I did like every day was you know writing 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 writing. and to do this as a job you need to approach it as a job and so if you're a freelancer or you're in a gig economy or anything like that you understand that there is the the services you perform and then there's the other concern that you have to have which is the practical side if you're a creative person, the practical side is not always the most natural fit for you. You know, money or taxes or any of those sorts of concerns kind of come on the back end because you're like one day, like, oh crap, you know, I got to call my taxes. <laughs> you know, how do I do this? Well, my the, the concept behind doing the blog posts were to get people thinking about the practical aspects of what you're doing as you're doing the creative side so you know by all means write the book you know spend the time but at the same time treat yourself like something you need to market because you are you really need to focus on the practical business side of what you're doing that is awesome insight and valuable feedback and i just know listeners are going to want to dive into your blog posts and read those so i'll make sure to include that in the show notes so they can hear from another author who's been in this experience and understand that you know it's a balance between the creative side and then the business side of of what you're doing as an author and in creating a a business around your book so thank you for creating that and putting that into the world for for other authors to learn from absolutely and i'm wondering what are you curious about right now what what's next for you what's on the agenda are you are you thinking about another writing project or are you are you still really busy wrapping up you know all the media opportunities and, and press <laughs> and things like that on Sir Barton because I know you've been busy <laughs> well the Sir Barton I, I finished the vast majority of the stuff for Sir Barton last fall and so it's nice like today has been a nice opportunity to revisit because I haven't really had to do anything since like the holidays with the book. I'm always happy to do things. If people have questions about Sir Barton, I'm always happy to do, you know, Zoom meetings or whatever. So I've been writing. Um, I write columns for Pass the Wire and the Racing Biz. I do history columns for them. Um, for the Racing Biz, it's called Backtracks. And then for Pass the Wire, it's just features. So each month I feature a different historic course 
you know, trying to tell story. I did Unbridled last month and I realized that at my age, I know who Unbridled is because I was, a, you know, a teenager when Unbridled won the Derby. But there are all these, you know, this generation that weren't alive when he won. So I wanted to cover his story and why he's important because you hear his name come up quite a bit in pedigrees. Um, so that's the kind of stuff they do now from like month to month. And then I have this list of projects that I want to do, like different books that is probably going to be longer than I watch them live. And so I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to clone myself so that I can get all this done. <laughs> I am currently working on, like literally I'm looking at the next chapter in a book on Gallant Fox and Omaha. Oh, cool. So my, uh, once when I was researching Sir Barton, I, part of doing a, a book puzzle was that you had to look at other books in your genre that are available that are similar to or you know what you're working on and so as I was researching Spartan I knew another book about him that exists but I went and looked at other books on Triple Crown winners to see what was out there and you know there's like you know a half dozen on Secretariat and you know Citation and World Away and, and stuff like that but I couldn't find one on Gallup Fox in Omaha it's like what is this and why is this out there so I uh, took it upon myself, of course, to write the book. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on right now is I started writing it. I've got a blog for it called Foxes of Bel Air. I've got a Twitter account and Instagram and a Facebook page. And <laughs> I, I'm trying to populate the blog with more of the same that I did with the Sir Martin Project to get people excited about that era of racing as I do my research on it. Uh, I have a book on the Triple Crown itself that I eventually want to do where I trace the history and the evolution of the concept from Freeze for Barton and all its incarnations through Sir Barton through the, the 30s and the 40s when it really kind of takes hold in the Pantheon. And then into those gaps between like Citation and Secretariat and then affirmed and American Pharaoh just to kind of trace how the Triple Crown evolved in, in the consciousness of horse racing. Because it's something that hasn't been done all set down in one place. And I think it would be valuable to, to see the history of the concept over time so that when you have people who want to understand why the Triple Crown is a Triple Crown, here's this history of it in one place. So that in itself is this like overwhelming, you know, prospect that I really want to do, and I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. But in the interim, I'm going to write this book about Kellogg Pasta. <laughs> this is fantastic. So you, your muse is just working and bubbling and and ready to to create and generate, and yes. and I am I am so excited for you and. Jennifer, I have so enjoyed talking with you today. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours. And, and the next time you do have a book out, please do reach back out to me. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about your discoveries around your next project. Yeah. But in the meantime, can you share with listeners where they can find you and information about your books? You can find me. Okay, so I have an umbrella site, which is Jennifer Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, writes.com. Uh, and when you go there, it will take you to Edit Your Docs or uh, the Smart Project or Foxes. So the links for those are all, all in there. That's like my portfolio site. I'm on Facebook. I have my personal account. <laughs> and then I have Jennifer S. Kelly as my author page. 
the Spartan Project has a page, uh, the book has a page, <laughs> Fox and Bel-Air has a page. I'm on Twitter at the Sir Barton because at Sir Barton was already taken when I signed up for Twitter. So it's at the Sir Barton and uh, also at Foxes of Bel Air. And then I'm on Instagram under the, those two. I'm still working on using Instagram. The pro problem with Instagram is that it's visually based and a lot of the images that I have are not mine, mm. but can't share images as easily as other people can because I don't really have a ton of visuals I can generate. Also, you know, the racing biz, I've got that and then pass the wire. You can find some features that I've done there. So I think that's pretty much it. Like in terms of my, my web presence, I think that's enough. Like it's, uh, <laughs> you've got your bases covered for I, sure. <laughs> that was part of doing the platform thing was they said, you really have to establish a toehold on social media. And since, you know, I spent an inordinate amount of time on my computer anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> really was it, that challenging to do it's really valuable and mm -hmm. I do enjoy doing it I will make sure to link to all those places in in the show notes so people can get directly to you and your books and and Jennifer thank you so much for the gift of your time I I have so enjoyed talking with you today oh thank you so much for the gift of your time this is what I love to do I really love this part of being a writer and promoting a book is is interacting with people so thank you Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.